Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 215. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and back once again is my other semi-permanent co-host, Sega's own Mike Puck. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing great, Derek. Thanks for having me back on. It's uh, been a little bit of a volatile market, so there's a lot to talk about. I know. It's it's sort of interesting. I mean, we there is a lot to talk about, and I think one of the first things... We got to talk about the Fed and is the Fed really broke? And I've, <laughs> but let me, let's do that after we, we just talk about, you know, you look at the year to date performance of different stuff. And what do I mean by stuff? I mean, like large growth, Europe, uh, developed markets, S&P 500, Japan, small value. I think this is one of the reasons why it's really difficult for retail investors and retail investors just means, you know, the, the non-professionals. To try and say, okay, at the beginning of the year, like Mike, at the beginning of the year, if somebody would have said, okay, I'm not saying you're telling them to invest this way, but Mike, you you probably wouldn't have said, yeah, big tech is going to lead in in Q1, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would have said the opposite. And in conversation with advisors around the country, you know, I would say they were really leaning towards small cap value. <laughs> um, I had a lot of conversations around, yeah, I'm concerned about the, the large cap markets, uh, especially tech. Are we going to be in some type of tech bubble? You know, I've, I know I've heard you and Jay talk in the past about technology and kind of what's happening. Are, is this like a dot-com scenario, which it certainly doesn't feel like that now. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of value conversations, a lot of small cap conversations, and those areas aren't doing particularly well. And you're you're looking at large cap growth and, and tech specifically, and it's kind of leading the way. I mean, you look at this, let me just put some perspective in this for the for the listeners. Large growth. So large growth, by the way, would be your Apples, your Microsofts, NVIDIAs, those types of companies. And and Mike, last week, uh, I know you listened to that episode. Jay and I were were mentioning how I think it's the there's five or six stocks. That if you took away their their year to date performance, the the index would be flat. But large growth is up almost fourteen and a half, and the S and P was up you know seven and a half. Japan six and a half. Uh, then you have uh, international developed was plus eight point six, and then Europe specifically was up over ten percent. And you mentioned large value. I mean, large value was up, but it was up a percent. Commodities were down, you know, seven and a half percent. So, yeah, I mean, I think this. I mean, and I'll mention Bitcoin was up, but I, you know, my, yeah, that that's a. I always have that debate about Bitcoin, and uh, but yeah, Mike. I mean, going in, you would have thought, okay, there, there's. I, I wouldn't want to say no way, but you say, okay, the Fed's raising rates. And we're hearing about tech layoffs, and then that's the thing that does well. And then developed international. Uh, although, Mike, in, you and I did that podcast, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, I'll link to it in the show notes. We talked specifically if the dollar came down, international would do well. And guess what? The dollar came down, right, Mike? Yeah, we did talk about it. So a couple of things. One on the value side, you would think that that would be the space that's doing the best, right? We're in, you've heard, you heard the recession word is being thrown out there constantly coming into the year. So you're thinking, all right, well, where do I hide from a recession? You're thinking, well, dividends or kind of the value side is more conservative, more consistent companies, not so, so growth oriented. 
And that hasn't done well, like you quoted right here, I'm looking at it, you know, up 1% on the year. Um, so really we've seen the large cap growth and a lot of times that's tech, but large cap growth companies do well. It seems to me like the, the safe haven, at least for this market, is those large cap growth companies are the Microsofts, the Apples, the Googles. Um, at least right now they are, right? And I think the reasons for that are they're just so big. They're, you know, they're multinational. Um, you know, they get so much of their, their income derived from all over, you know, different avenues. Uh, so I think that's why they're doing well. They have plenty of cash on hand, right? They don't need to issue new debt at these higher levels. They, they issued it at the lower levels. Um, so I, I think that's why you're seeing large cap growth do well. Um, and then on, on, the Europe side or the international side. Yeah, we, we talked about that maybe a month ago or so. And when I was at the conference, that was the number one theme uh, going into 2023 was let's look for international stocks because the dollar is going to depreciate. And that is leading the way. One of the top three performers so far is the international markets, or at least Europe uh, and EFA are both doing really well. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was probably if you added a little international to the portfolio in the beginning of the year, you're it's probably helping out. By the way, I do think it's interesting that the TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, were up close to 6%. And in the, the throes of the worst, you know, inflation and, uh, you know, of course, TIPS have duration and they have interest rate risk. But TIPS didn't do well last in, in 2022. I mean, that, that you, you think about, you know, at the end of 2021 into early 2022, if you knew inflation was going to run like it did, you'd be like, oh, I'm all in on tips. And that wasn't the thing that did the best. I mean, I think high yield did better than tips, which is that's just goes to show you, right? Right. Yeah, I think it did too. Uh, high yield did, yeah, I think much better than tips last year, but tips are doing great now. Um, looking at the high yield space of 3.6. So yeah, I, I high yield's probably faring okay. Uh, it's it's definitely the, the better yields, I think, are probably going up, right? I mean, high yield's got to be paying a little bit more than it was a few years ago at this point, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the spread above treasury, so we look at the credit spread, which is the the spread between the interest rate on high yield and the interest rate on, let's say, treasuries. It's been hovering close to 500 basis points, which you know, when we say 500 basis points, that's 5%, meaning you're getting close to 5% of a yield above what you would get in a treasury. And so, you know, there's some data we, we talked to, you know, I, I read some of the stuff that state street puts out and we talked to different, uh, different people on the street and, and, you know, the higher the, the credit spread, uh, usually there's some link to the forward performance on that. Now you and I both know, Mike, I mean, this, what we do is we buy the markets, we hedge, we do use some some high yield in some of the portfolios as a funding source for uh, some of the hedged equity. But, um, you know, Mike, the other thing, too, is don't you think that and, and I, I, I'm sort of leading the witness here, I'm leading <laughs> leading you into this. Uh, but I, I saw some some data and this is from uh, uh, from State Street. And it's the idea that so many companies when interest rates were still low, they actually either refinance their debt. And when you refinance debt, it means you you put out new bonds to, to pay down the old bonds and retire those. Or they just, you know, there haven't been a lot of, there, there's not a lot of stuff that's maturing. So Mike, we, we looked at 23, 24, and 
uh, you, you're looking at the same thing. I mean, I would say there's not a lot of bonds, you know, high yield bonds that are coming due. And that means that companies don't have to worry about refinancing it into a higher yield. But Mike, I know you're looking at this too, and it's, it's kind of striking how little high yield has to, is coming due at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the big concerns with rising rates, right, is the, the companies that are riskier, that have that have to issue debt at higher rates, you know, they're, they're going to have to reissue de uh, debt at these new higher rates, right? So now it's, you know, before their debt was maybe 4%, 5% uh, coupons to the to the holders, and now maybe they have to issue 10 or 12%. But yeah, if, you, if you're looking at this chart, um, and for the viewers that can't see it, right, is we're looking at how much debt needs to be reissued uh, and it's very low for the low quality companies or even even lower for the, for the mid tier and then the triple B bond or better. It's, it's low as well. So um, there's not a lot of debt over the next two years that needs to be issued. I think with low interest rates and for how long they were low, uh, that was a great opportunity for clients to issue debt. Right. If you're a business owner and you can uh, you know, issue some bonds and have low payments to your bondholders. Well, why not do it? Right. Interest rates are so low. Uh, you know, same thing if you own a house, right? You own a house and you're, you had the opportunity to take a HELOC the past five years at a really low rate. You know, why not do it, right? You're getting money cheap for three, four percent. So I think you probably saw a lot of businesses lock in those lower rates uh, over the past couple of years. And so now they're kind of locked in. They don't have to reissue debt at these higher rates. Uh, it kind of changes as we go further along into 2025 and 2026. Hard to predict where rates will be then, but um, you may, if there's maybe they're thinking if there's rate cuts, they're okay issuing debt at that point. But I, yeah, next two years you don't have a lot of debt being reissued, and that's going to help companies a lot. I'll take a look at Netflix and why Netflix. I, it just it's one that I picked, and it's easy for me to take a look and see the the list of the the interest rate on their debt. And at the end of 2022, December 31st, uh, of course, you can see this in their, uh, in their 10Ks, their, their annual reports. But their average weighted debt is about 4.75%, meaning you take out all the bonds they've issued and you blend them all together by weighting. And, and that's about... So I, I just randomly pulled this company. And I think Netflix... Isn't Netflix, I know it's high yield on, is it S&P or Moody's? One of them has it as high yield. I don't know what the other one has it. But I'm just looking through this, Mike. I mean, they have 3% coupon debt. They have 3.63%. They have a 6.38. I don't know. You know, I, I'd have to, I wasn't prepared, Mike, to dig through this and give you the, the maturities on there. But I think that's a good example. Like if, imagine if they had to refinance all their debt right now. And their weighted average interest rate on their debt outstanding is 4.75. Well, you know, the two-year treasury is just a little north of 4%. So you'd think investors would want a spread above what they could get, either risk-free or corresponding maturity in treasuries. And I'm just going to say, I mean, I think that if they had to refinance all that, they'd have to pay more. So I think that's a good example, Mike, of what you're talking about from the graph you're explaining to the listeners that, yeah, I mean, if you don't have to refinance debt, you get to enjoy those lower rates. Yeah. Uh, I'm look, So I looked it up here. So it looks like Moody's uh, did rate them um, 
for 2023 with a BAA3 or a BA1. So they've actually been upgraded to investment grade. Uh, looks like, uh, well, is that investment grade, Derek? BAA3? Oh, I, I always, you know, I know the S&P, like the, tri- the, the AAA and stuff like that. Uh, but what would you say it was BAA3? Hang on. I got I have like a little, a little cheat sheet that, uh, that shows me that if I can bring it up, but hang on one second, we'll do this on the fly. That's fine. Yeah. So B, what'd you say it was BAA? BAA3 is the Moody's rating currently on the debt. Um, and while you're looking that up. Okay. So that's the lowest tier of investment grade. Okay. Okay. So that's like a triple B bond, right? Yeah, like a triple B minus, I guess, in, in S&P, I think. Yeah, you're right. If they, if they have to issue new debt, it's going to be higher than, if you can get a treasury at four, four and a quarter, right? Why buy Netflix at the same rate? So they'll have to issue higher. Um, but they probably, and again, that's why you're seeing such low um, such low reissuance over the next two years is because everybody locked in uh, bonds at much lower rates the past two or three years. You know, one of the things I guess is a downside, if there is one, to these companies having cheap debt still and the fact they don't have to refinance, there's this con- concept of, of zombie companies. And zombie companies is where their EBIT, interest before interest, earnings before interest and taxes, is not greater than the interest that they owe on their debt. In other words, if you, own a, if you earn a million dollars in earnings, before interest in taxes, so your EBIT, and let's say the interest that you owe on your debt is 1.1 million. Well, you're not, you don't even have, you're not even making enough earnings to cover your debt. And that's called an interest coverage ratio. And the higher the interest coverage ratio, I mean, the EBIT to your interest that you owe, uh, the theory is, in quotes, the, the, the healthier the company. So I guess one thing is if there are zombies right now, and I, I don't have the current data on you know what percentage of Russell 2000 companies or zombies or S&P, uh, but you, you see it more in the Russell 2000. I guess that's one thing is there hasn't been a flushing out of some of those companies. And I don't know, I don't follow it on a deep enough level, the, S, you know, the, the Russell 2000, but I guess that's one downside if you want to have a, sort of a, a repurposing of capital. But um, but look, I mean, I think if nothing else, Mike, if the Fed is right on their dot plots, and we know that long-term they never really are, but let's say that rates actually come back down in, in two or three years, well, these companies don't have to refinance. And if they have to refinance in a couple of years and the Fed's dot plots wind up being right, then they get to refinance at lower rates again. Maybe not as low, but not as bad as today. So, Mike, I'll chalk this up to, I'll, we'll let everybody know when it happens, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think most people position themselves well for this. I think that's why you're seeing these you know, low finance, refinance rates or low refinance rates of companies over the next two years. So you're right. They probably are anticipating lower rates in the future. Uh, like you said, we'll see. I mean, Apple at one point, I think it was cheaper for them to issue debt, even though they had cash on their balance sheet and didn't necessarily need to issue the debt. I think they issued the debt. And I, I could be wrong, but I, th- I think they were issuing debt at somewhere around 1% or even less. But it was cheaper for them to do that than repatriate 
overseas profits back to the U.S. and pay the taxes. Uh, it was it was a better deal for them. So, all right, well let's let's transition, Mike, and I want to talk a little bit about just correlations. And this is from uh, Yuri and Timur at Fidelity. Uh, by the way, that other chart was also a Fidelity chart. I'll, I'll want to make sure and give them credit. But he had put something out on Twitter, correlation matrix the last 12 months. And basically, a correlation matrix just takes a look at different asset classes. And it's a really fancy looking graph. And, and on the left-hand side, you, you find an asset class and you match it with the, the one up top and you meet in the middle. And so, Mike, I don't know what you're seeing here, but it seems like there's a lot of high correlation, especially with, you know, whether it's international or even some of the, you know, the investment grade and the high yield bonds, right? Yeah. And I think when the when the markets usually drop, right, we see correlations go usually get closer to one, right? So things are highly correlated in down markets. Um you know, if you're breaking down the market and, and, and breaking down this chart, right, you have the S&P watch obviously is a one. And then you kind of look down here and if you're looking at Europe and IFA, you're, you're at 0.9, Japan's at 0.9, uh, high yield corporates at 0.93. So, yeah, there's a high correlation between a lot of this. Gold is really a non-correlator, but and, and gold's done OK this year, I, I believe, compared to the market. Let me look up. It's broken out a little bit of late, right? Yeah. So yeah, gold's up. Yeah. 7%, uh, 9% on the year actually. So yeah, gold's actually done quite well, beating the market, uh, so far year to date. Um, interesting to see, to see the 60, 40, Derek, right? At a 0.99 correlation. Of the S&P. All right. I was going to, I was going to ask you about that. That was, I was going to say, can you guess which one I'm like, not the most surprised at, cause I know, but I'm glad you went there. Talk about that. Yeah. So uh, for the, for, if you can't see this chart, what we're looking at is, is correlation of the S&P and, and you have, you get down to the traditional 60, 40 and, and the correlation is 0.99. So highly, highly correlated to the S&P 500. I think this is a, a misconception that a lot of retail investors think is, Hey, I'm going to invest in 60, 40 and I'm, I'm not going to be correlated to the, to the S&P because 40% of my portfolio is going to be in bonds, and that's not going to be correlated. Well, we saw that last year pretty much fall apart, where the 60-40 did not work. Uh, and it looks this year to be highly correlated again. Um, so think again if you're in that 60-40 and you're a retail investor or you're even an advisor that's that's using the traditional 60-40 modern portfolio theory, right? which is what, 70, 80 years old at this point. I don't know if it's so modern. Uh, but yeah, I think the 60, 40, I'm not saying it's dead, but it's certainly something to rethink. I think it's an important point to make too, uh, Mike, is that correlations can be on the downside and on the upside. And so a lot of people say, well, you know, bonds have come back a little bit as interest rates have come down. But Mike, I mean, it's like, if they're both acting the same, what is the 40% really doing? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I mean, it's not doing anything if it's, they're both acting the same. I mean, look at last year, right? S&P down 18, bonds down 19. That's not supposed to happen. Um, that 40%, at least in it, from a client's perspective and a retail client perspective, their thought is that 40% is not going to go down uh, like the S&P 500. Uh, and, and 
on the other side is not go up like the S&P 500. That's the point is stability in the portfolio. And we just, I don't think we've seen that over the past year, year and a half or so with that 40% if you're in that traditional 60-40. It's not provided stability. It's not provided protection. Um, it's really has been an eye-opener to people that I think follow that 60-40 portfolio. And this, looking at a, at a correlation matrix, is showing, hey, it's it's highly correlated to the S&P 500. So I, I think, too, with, with rates kind of stabilizing, I know there's still talk about them going up, but... I don't know how much growth that 40% of your portfolio gets right now. So you you got to keep that in mind. Um, the 60-40 is just not as diversified and uncorrelated. That 40% is not as uncorrelated as you might think. In a traditional recession where the playbook is equity sell off and the Fed comes in and jams rates lower, in a traditional recession like that, you would expect that 40%. Now, I will say back in 08, 09, the US AGG did have some mortgage-backed securities and some things that, that got tagged. And there were some mutual funds that had different allocations of parts of the bond universe. And there was some pain there. And so, look, I mean, the, the CFA Institute, and I've talked about this before, they did a paper. I, I can't find it anymore. Otherwise, I'd link to it in the show notes. Maybe you can Google it. But they looked at over longer terms, uh, longer periods, thinking like over 10 years out, your annualized return tends to equal whatever the starting yield was when you bought it. And so, you know, if you're buying a treasury now, over the next 10 years, according to, to some of those studies, you'd say, okay, well, my return's going to be better than when it was 1% or three quarters of a percent on the 10 year. So we'll, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see what happens, but uh, I, I just thought it was interesting. And I think it's a great point, Mike, that you make that when things get really bad, the correlations go to one. Things are bad though, Mike, for the federal reserve. And what do I mean by this? Well, the federal reserve came out with their year end. Uh, I don't know if you, it's an actual audit, but they, they come out with a year end report. And they, they came out in, in their documents. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But you remember, Mike, how all those banks have those, those treasuries and those mortgage-backed securities and different stuff with higher duration. Interest rates go up. Bond prices go down. Well, the Fed was not immune. Now, the Fed uh, at the end of 2022 had fair value on their, their balance sheet of $7.349 trillion worth of things like, uh, you know, MBS, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, notes, bills, residential, commercial, you know, all, all sorts of agency stuff. And you say, okay, well, well that doesn't really mean anything to me. Uh, their cost on that was $8.429 trillion, which means the cumulative unrealized gains or losses in this case was one trillion eighty billion three hundred fifty four million and change. Uh, so if the Fed was a commercial bank, I guess it would have to rescue itself, Mike. Right? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> if you look at the the numbers, right? Is there they're holding all of these 
different areas, right? They're, they're, these are different bonds that they they hold. And it's is, is this saying that their balance sheet is much riskier than maybe they're alluding to when you see them on TV and you see them at, 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 you know, uh, during the conferences on CNBC? Well, I mean, the second part is where I get into what this actually may mean. But anytime you have duration, and I think, and I, you know, th- this goes back to your point about sometimes it's really frustrating for not only advisors, but of course, you know, and retail clients, an understanding of the risk in bonds. And when you have bonds which have duration, duration just means that's a fancy word. And it's actually a calculation to say, okay, what's the time to maturity? And duration is not the time to maturity. Duration is how much will I make or lose for every 100 basis point or 1% change in interest rates? And yeah, when you have duration, and the Fed has some duration here, they're, they're down. Now, I mean... On the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, if if I do in my math here, they lost uh, a little over a trillion dollars on a you know eight point four two nine. So they're down twelve point eight one percent right now on their holdings. But if you had depositors that were pulling money out of out of the bank, I mean, but yeah, Mike, I mean, it's no surprise that interest rates went up, bond prices go down, right? Yes. So, yeah, and that makes more sense. So, as, as I'm looking at this, is you're right. So, if you think about Silicon Valley Bank, right, is that they had all this these long term bonds that had a lot of duration risk. The Fed hiked very quickly, and those long term bonds marked down, right? There's and then people wanted their assets, and they had to sell the bonds at a major discount. So they lost you know a bunch of money and, and put the bank out of business. And a signature bank was was next, right? So. Um, Yes, the Fed has this duration risk as well. Uh, I think so. You got to be careful with that. And and you're right. There, people get kind of confused, and I think definitely clients uh, or, or or any investor can get confused with the the term of duration risk, right? But it is. It's that hundred points, uh, hundred raise in hundred points, raise or fall in hundred points or hundred basis points, which is going to determine. The duration risk of your bond portfolio. So, yeah, when you look at the Fed, they carry some duration risk as well, not just the banks or individuals who own bonds. Of course, the Fed is not a commercial bank and they're, they can't really go bankrupt. But there is an interesting thing, and it this is a, a little bit of inside baseball, but I'm going to simplify this. The Fed, each week, is they make a remittance to the, the Treasury. And, and so what does that mean? Well, to give you an example, uh, you know, they earn interest on all these holdings. So they earn coupon payments. Or the, as a, an asset, a bond matures, they get par value back. And, but basically, they, they pay their profits back to the treasury. And last year, starting in, I think it's September 7th, they actually had a debit. So what does that mean? Well, think about what the Fed is doing right now. The Fed is providing liquidity. They're doing things in the over, the reverse repo market where they're paying, you know, 4.8 something percent. Uh, they are doing, you know, ass, ex, excess uh, assets that the banks park at the Fed. They're paying, 
you know, north of four and a half percent on those right now. But these losses happen because the bonds that they're holding have lower coupon payments. So let's just think about this. Imagine all you had was a one $1,000 bond and you earn 2% on that. But you're paying on $1,000 4.5%. The difference there is what? 1.5%, right? I'm doing my math. No, 2.5%. So the Fed is paying out at this point more interest, let's say, to banks than it is receiving from its portfolio of bonds. And what that's, that means is each and every week, uh, they, they're supposed to remit the interest to the treasury. Well, they've been paying out more interest. And so they actually have sort of an IOU. It's called the deferred asset. And since September 7th, every week, it's been a negative. Uh, I totaled it all up through, let's say, March 29th. This thing uh, goes every Wednesday. I don't have it yet for this week. And it's about $556 billion. So it, it's sort of interesting. And, and so it, it, from my account, it owes $556 billion. And if you go back and you say, okay, is that big? Is that, well, 2021, it paid the Treasury about $109 billion, I believe. Yep. Uh, $86, $87 billion in 2020. 55 billion in 2019. So it normally pays. And does that mean the Fed is going bankrupt? It does not. Uh, It's sort of an accounting thing where when this mismatch in interest they're paying versus interest they receive at some point settles itself out, uh, they'll eventually pay that to the the Treasury. But yeah, Mike, it's right now uh, the Fed owes the Treasury money, and it's sort of, sort of like an IOU, but it's, it's a quote unquote what they call a deferred asset. So leave it to the Fed to turn a liability into a quote unquote asset, right? Um, so does this have any? Is this a problem? I, I don't. I don't know. I, I guess you could say, well, this is money that the Treasury is not getting. So does that increase our budget deficit? Although it's, I guess it's sort of like, a, a, what do they call it in a, you know, accounts payable accounts? I guess the treasury has sort of an accounts receivable that they're, they're, they will get at some point. But um, anyway, Mike, I, I may be the only person that finds this interesting, but it's sort of, it shows you what happens when rates go up this much. When the short end, we have this really high inversion right now. Uh, short rates are much higher than long rates. And I don't know. That's what I got on this, Mike. Anything? Yeah. So I, I think from a, if I'm thinking from a retail standpoint or an advisor standpoint, questions on this would be, what does this mean, right? So the Fed owes $556 billion to the Treasury. Is, is this what people are concerned about when they think about Hey, there's going to be defaults to the tra- like the U.S. economy or the dollar, things like that. Is that related risk, or is this a pretty normal phenomenon that happens where we, can, you know, they, they sometimes the Fed owes, sometimes the, the the Fed doesn't owe. Does it go back and forth? I think if we look historically, that can maybe some, provide some clarity here on this. Is that is this pretty common for it to happen? Because I don't know off the top of my head if this happens. No, this this is not normal, and it's it's sort of. 
it's the size of their their balance sheet and it's the it's the mismatch and in, in the interest rate that they're paying on the short end versus the the coupon payments they receive on on their their balances. So it's not normal. Does this have anything to do with treasuries defaulting? Absolutely not. No. This is um, you know, the Fed sort of creates money, they buy treasuries, you know, they they were buying treasuries. Now they're they're sort of uh, letting things run off the balance sheet, but no, and this, this doesn't have anything to do with the debt ceiling or, uh, but no, this is not normal. And I don't think it means anything because the fed, you know, it's not a commercial bank. It's can't go broke. Uh, it just means, I think if I'm, if I'm deducing this right, that the treasury doesn't have this money that they otherwise would. Uh, so you know, it's it's just interesting to me. Yeah, it, it is interesting to see. And it's it's interesting that we haven't been here before where the Fed owes the Treasury. But like you said, it's kind of an IOU and they, they go back and forth. So I, I think that's that's just it, it is. It's an interesting thing that we probably haven't seen before. So it, it we'll see how it affects the market. But I think that that creates a little uncertainty, which brings it back to this is why we hedge. Right? This is why we had our portfolios, because this is something that's never happened before. I've said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again, which the market hates uncertainty. So when you have some, something that maybe hasn't happened before, then there can be some volatility in the market. And this is why we hedge and say, right? So I think this, this is just another example of why having hedges in your portfolio or some type of downside protection is important. Yeah, I'll also say I'm going to link to there's a, a Brookings Institute uh, article on this that really gets into it, and, and I think sort of should uh, assuage the uh, you know any any sort of big fears about hearing this. I'll also tell you, Mike, this is one of those things people should stay off the internet sometimes because I've seen stories talking about this as a huge huge problem. And, you know, same type of stories I saw on, on the re- reverse re- overnight reverse repo market usage by the Fed. You know, like somebody put out that people are borrowing from the Fed to short AMC. Like, th- it's really easy to put junk out about stuff like this. So I'll link to uh, the Brookings Institute thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we'll we'll kind of move on from here. But I, anyway, it's, it's just interesting. It's never happened before. Mike, do you, th- do you think the debt ceiling... Like when do we start hearing more stuff about the debt ceiling volatility coming or the danger of the debt ceiling volatility on CNBC? Like, don't you feel like they've been missing that? I don't know. Yeah, they haven't talked about it yet. But being in the industry now for as long as I have, and and you know, you've been in longer than I have, but right, that's it's always something. What's the headline news of the day, right? And we'll and we'll see soon. We're gonna. Most likely see that they're they're talking about the debt ceiling and how it needs to be raised and people aren't going to get paid on time and then right they always talk about par- parks and recreation workers aren't going to get paid or you know it's, it's some government employees things like that unless we raise the debt ceiling so that will be headline news just like it always is right and I think that is not something to be worried about um, but it, it does concern people and it's always. It's always shocking to hear that we need to raise the debt ceiling and then the Democrats use it as a tool or the Republicans use it as a tool. Um, so we're, we should hear about that soon, right? Oh, yeah. You're going to hear a lot of scary stuff about it, too. Um, I, I will say that 
you know, when, when I look at federal uh, government, government tax receipts and those come in quarterly, the annual, the last quarter was Q4 uh, and they basically take the, the Q4 amount that came in. So this is like tax taxes that are coming into the treasury. So things that are either withholding or people paying quarterlies or whatever. Uh, on an annualized rate, there's about $3.2 trillion. I'll also tell you, in the last two years, I think tax receipts are up something like 40% or 25%. I'd have to double check it. I talked about it on a podcast. My point of bringing this up, Mike, is let's say we use this annualized rate of $3.2 trillion. Like Even if we don't have a, a debt ceiling deal, you could prioritize where this money that comes into the treasury goes. And it's true, you can issue more debt because uh, it would it would exceed the ceiling. It's not like, you know, they're going to go bankrupt and, you know, they're not going to pay the, the treasury interest and things like that. So I don't know. I mean, I th- my sense is that each side could sort of dig in because if one side, had, you know, like, let's say, I, I think you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass it. And I think in the House, it's just a, a simple majority. But, you know, you may have, this is their opportunity to try and get something. And get something means something in a bill that pleases one side versus the other. And they and they both do it uh, when Republicans had the, the White House, uh, Democrats squeezed them a little bit, and vice versa. So, um, I don't know. I, but I, I think you're going to start seeing it and the closer you get um, and the politicians aren't going to help because they're going to start putting out stuff that's doomsday and everything. But uh, it's a little bit of game theory. Remember game theory and economics, Mike? It's, you know, who has the stronger hand, right? You don't, you don't remember that? <laughs> <laughs> From my college economics classes. Um, yeah, it's a tool, right? They use it to, and, and they we need a raise for this reason or that reason, Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter who's in power, right? They're, they always argue over raising the debt ceiling and somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Um, you know, and we end up raising it. I mean, I think that happens every time. I mean, it has happened every time, right? Where they always come to an agreement at some point. Another reason, and you said this earlier today, another reason why you turn off CNBC and you stop watching the talking heads. Um, and, and that's coming from a firm who's, who has a talking head on CNBC sometimes, right? You know, we're even on CNBC sometimes. But uh, the the terror or or the you know market's going to crash, things like that. That always seems to get more people to tune in than hey, this is a nothing burger and the debt ceiling will be raised and everything will be fine. So if they said that, nobody would watch. Uh, nobody would watch the news. So there is an inverse relationship, Mike, and I, I'll send you the chart of. The market turmoil. So the worse the market does, the better CNBC's ratings are. Somebody had put out a graph of this one time, and uh, that you know, when there's blood in the streets, the eyeballs are, are there. You know, the ratings go up. So uh, more red on the screen, the better. All right, Mike. Thinking about uh, switching to screens, and do you have any recommendations for the audience, uh, Jay? I think. I think Jay last week gave Ted Lasso. Maybe you could, no, you gave Ted Lasso a couple weeks ago, which is kind of an obvious one, right? But you have anything for us, Mike, this week? Yeah, Ted Lasso, it was an obvious one. Great show, lighthearted. 
Uh, always fun to watch. But this week, which I haven't seen, I'm probably going to watch it this weekend, but I've just seen the Rotten Tomato views. So uh, Super Mario Bros. is uh, is out. I think Chris Pratt's the main guy there. And it's uh, uh, it's it's Rotten Tomatoes was 98% by the viewers. So that's going to be on my to-do list this weekend. I will definitely watch Super Mario Bros. I think it looks great. Is that like, uh, you know, tomorrow we're recording this on, on Thursday before, uh, the holiday weekend, but is that, is that a, uh, a Friday afternoon holiday weekend type viewing or you, you wait and go, uh, like Saturday or, or Sunday? That'll be a Friday night. I think for us, that'll okay. be a Friday night. Yeah. It'll be a great Friday night. Um, yeah, I, I, I know there's been good reviews on it and I think there was a little controversy too on this. So, but there's some big names in it and. Looks pretty good. All right. I watched something on Amazon Prime, and it was Daisy Jones and the Six. So it's, I swear, I mean, I, I afterwards I looked it up, and I think it's loosely, it's not based on Fleetwood Mac, but it's got a Fleetwood Mac vibe, and it's uh, sort of a band in the, in the early 70s. And the format is, if you remember behind the music on VH1, where they, it's, they're interviewing the band members and then they sort of cut back and show footage. But it's, I thought it was really good and it's only, it's not going to be back again. So it's like one and done. That's the story. I think it was eight or 10 episodes, but Daisy Jones and the six got some good music in it. And, uh, uh, I think I think people would would like that. So, Mike, that's my recommendation. It sounds good. I like the the shows that have one season, one really good season. Remember, um, they had the chess show that was uh the it was the Queen's Gambit, right? That was a great. Oh, that was really season. good. Yeah, yeah. That everybody ran out and bought chess boards, <laughs> and myself included, right? And I was teaching my wife chess uh, at the time. So, one season, if it's a good one, it's it's usually pretty fun to watch. I, I remember hearing or reading, uh, reading actually, it was uh, chess.com and, and I guess they have an app. They, they saw an explosion of new players on their app playing chess. I will tell you, by the way, I, when I lived in New York City, uh, there were the speed chess players in uh, uh, one, of the, one of the parks down in lower Manhattan near Greenwich Village. And basically you put up money and you can play one of them. And it was speed chess, so you're hitting the clock. And I put my money down, and let's just say I lost. I, I think it was might have been 30 seconds. I don't even know. It wasn't that quick, but it was like, yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah, and so they're that's amazing. Really so. good, really good, and fun to watch. And I'll, I'll bring it full circle. So the Anya Taylor Joy, who was in the Queen's Gamut. That was a star of in the Queen's Gambit, the um, the main character. She's in the in Super Mario Bros. <laughs> so uh should be a good movie. That's my I, that's long way to get to my recommendation, but that's how I got there. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, everyone, uh by the time you listen to this, you'll already be into the holiday weekend or a little bit after. But we hope you had a good holiday. And Mike, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me again, Derek. It was great. All right. See you everyone.